the Progressive Podiatry Project podcast, here to share knowledge, insights and information for you to improve your clinical practice and most importantly, help you help your clients. Uh, welcome everyone, Talisha from P3 here today and I'm joined by the amazing Ben Cormack from Core Kinetic and the Better Clinician Project. So Ben, welcome. Thanks for joining us. I know. Good morning. We, we managed to, to get it all together. I uh, almost messed up the time zones, <laughs> but I am here. It's Lucky I was excited and ready to go now, really. Yeah. <laughs> it, cool. So one thing I wanted to, um, well, first off, because, yeah, like I've been familiar with Ben's work and Core Kinetic for quite a long time, fangirling very hard. Um, so because P3's um, cohort is predominantly podiatrists, mostly in Australia, we do have a few coming in from UK, South Africa, New Zealand. Um, can you give us a, just a little bit of a brief rundown of the history of Ben and how you came to be on P3's chat? How I just came to be on this earth, just generally. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was born on a rainy, uh, rainy, windy night. No, not that far back. <laughs> Oh, you can start that far. We'll get very philosophical. Yeah, so. No, there's gaps in my there's gaps in my memory if I'm if I'm being honest, going that far back. <laughs> um, so, what do we need to know about Ben? So, a, as you said, I um, my my major role now, um, and then I'm going to work backwards. My major role now is I mostly, I think, I I'm re- I suppose I'm really mostly an educator or a teacher. As you say, I I run Core Kinetic, which is an educational company. Um, and I get about the world speaking at conferences and teaching courses and these type of things. And then I also run uh, the Better Clinician Project, which is an online um, thing uh, alongside another shy and retiring gentleman called Adam Meekins. Who no yeah, one no one's ever heard of Adam. Not no one ever has ever heard of Adam. Um, and he does, you know, his stuff and, uh, and we kind of join forces on that. Uh, originally, way back when, uh, in the late 90s, I uh, studied in the UK what's called sports therapy, which is kind of physio for sports, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I went on uh, qualified uh, in, in the early 2000s or in, in 2000, actually, just a three year uh, degree. Um, and then I worked a lot in sports in the beginning. Although I uh, actually, um, obviously, one of my major interests these days is in things like pain and chronic pain. I actually started out in the world of sports and found out that treating high ankle sprains and hamstring strains and these type of things actually gets boring quite quickly. Um, I just didn't find the diversity that really interested me in sport. Um, So then I kind of just moved into just uh, working for myself. And then about 10 years ago, um, I started uh, started doing more teaching and that's kind of snowballed and, and spiralled into something a bit bigger. And, and so I've, you know, basically gone through those transitions in my career from, you know, being, you know, 100% clinical to, to being a bit less clinical these days, still see a few patients. Yep. But certainly at the moment, my passion more um is for teaching and knowledge and yeah i'm just starting to go out into the world of research and and, and have some papers published and uh, and stuff like that as well yeah so speaking of that one is the biopsychosocial model is lost in translation so hmm. and that was one like when i first reached out to you to have a chat that was one of the main topics i wanted to 
talk to you about because it does seem that the whole biopsychosocial model has been bastardized, I guess, to a at some extent like how so with that paper that kind of highlights so you don't have to delve right into the paper because I think people can read that but just overall with the where do you feel that clinicians were kind of getting it right but also maybe getting it wrong with our sort of understanding and the approach of the biopsychosocial paradigm yeah, well, the biopsychosocial uh, model paradigm framework, I, I, you know, people describe it in lots of different ways. Firstly, it's not new. You know, there are elements of this that go back, you know, probably to the 19th century. You know, you have your, um, you know, your, your classic people like William Osler and, you know, Peabody in the 30s and, you know, various people that have come along and then kind of George Engel came along. Um, and in fact, I learned this the other day that actually he wasn't even the first person to call it the biopsychosocial model. Okay. That there was someone, but yeah, I didn't know this. And then uh, one of my fellow authors has messaged me and been like, damn, I didn't even know this. Um, so even he wasn't, there was another uh, paper published in the 60s that talked about the biopsychosocial model. And then Engel was talked about this more, you know, in the late 70s with his kind of seminal work and. Uh, and so certainly seeing it as something new is probably one of the first mistakes that people yeah. make. And, you know, there's always something someone smarter said, like back in 1327 or something, and we've just kind of built on it. Um, but I, I think the big biggest problem we see is that a lot of it is interpretation of the original work. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's kind of a, a, opinion really a lot of it i mean, I mean the biopsychosocial model in essence is a little bit of opinion anyway right yeah that's very true uh but a lot of what we see talked about is people's opinion on how it should be applied or what it should look like and what that means is there are various opinions because you know people say opinions are like everyone's got one right <laughs> a certain sphincter yeah exactly exactly so that would be your classic quote um so there are lots and lots of different opinions. Now, you could also say, you know, even within Engel's work, there were different opinions. But what we tend to see are that I think there are two predominant opinions that come out or perspectives or interpretations that come out from the biopsychosocial model. One, I think, is, is a biomedical version. We've classic what some what people have done is taken it out and just said, how can we apply this in a way that doesn't actually change our paradigm too much? So and then I think death. well yeah exactly in in the sense that suddenly it's about intervention it's about causation it's about treatment right and and that's the perspective so what can we do to make people feel better with this yep. or you know how can we how can we explain things better with this you know like and, and a classic example would be the gatchel work which took the biopsychosocial and they, it's the biopsychosocial model of pain so the biopsychosocial model had nothing to do with pain it had everything to do with treating people that was yep. the point of it and, and you could say engel described it as the humanization of healthcare. the problem with the biomedical model is you know it doesn't take into account people their perspectives their feelings their life society all of these bigger things that impact on us. And if we think about things like social determinants of health, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because we know health 
is determined a lot by how rich you are, how educated you are, et cetera, et cetera. Definitely. Um, yeah. And I think what we've seen potentially is that, you know, we've taken the human side from Engel, which is about humanizing. It's about interaction. It's about communication. It's about explanation. You know, it's about not being the doctor who sits on his computer tapping away, not looking at people in the eye, that type of thing. Um, two, how do we find the cause of pain? Is it in this social area? Is it in this psychological area? Is it in this biological area? Right. So I actually think one of the big problems we have is we've taken the BPS model, which is about humanization and about, you know, making people heard, understood, interacted with. And we've applied it in a way that does none of those things, yeah. <laughs> which goes back to the problem isn't in the tissue. Now it's in the brain or the problem isn't in the tissue. It's in your psychology. The problem isn't in the tissue. It's in your whatever. You so know, just taken one aspect out and then yeah. subbed it in with something else. Exactly. So we've subbed we've subbed out the idea of pathology for psychopathology or subbed it out for something else. Yep. Whereas you can do that without ever listening or caring for the person. So I think, you know, sometimes there's definitely been a missing of the wood for the trees, if that makes sense. Yep. That people have looked at this model and, and, and applied it through a lens that's very, very similar to the current lens. We're just trying to find the cause in different places. Yep. Or we're trying yep. to find the cure in different places, but still missing the person. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And I would say that, yeah, that's a fairly accurate representation of even like, I don't know, because I know healthcare systems, they do vary immensely country to country, but that seems a relatively accurate reflection of what's even happening in Australia as far as musculoskeletal podiatry, physiotherapy and all those aspects. So like for you, like taking that into account, because it's something that even like the whole approach to like the biopsychosocial paradigm, even because um, I deal a lot with, I don't know how much you deal with students, but I have a fair bit to do with um, podiatry students, recent graduates, and it's still something that's not really taught. Like it's touched on a little bit in university studies, but still not a huge amount. And then there's people that have been practicing for a long period of time. So would you have any sort of starting advice um, to kind of get people, pun the pun, but get people off on the right foot if they're going, oh, shit, I should be kind of looking at things a little bit differently as opposed to like this biomedical, like how to start things off correctly without completely ballsing up this um, approach to treating people? Yeah, and this is, the, this is the reason why me and Peter and Sabrina and Joe just wrote this paper. The whole point was to say, well, you know, rather than what are all of these interpretations, what actually is Engel trying to tell us? Um, and so a great place to start would probably be reading that paper. Um, <laughs> but no self-promotion or plugging in any single kind of way. Just uh, If you weren't going to plug it, I was going to plug it. No, so no, 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 no <laughs> way at all. No way at all. Um, so there's two things I, I would like to see, right? Two things I think that, that we don't do enough of in early education. So we're talking, you know, the first week of university. You know, obviously the first week of university is about drinking beer. Second week of university. two years? Right? Yeah, maybe that's the first <laughs> two years. Maybe, uh, yeah, 
And maybe that's where I made a mistake. I extended that a little further even. <laughs> so so two decades of my career. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that two things that I'd like to see. One would be the philosophy of practice. So what I would like to see is everyone sit down in a room and say, what type of physio, what type of podiatrist, what type of, you know, whatever do you want to be? And so, you know, I, I think we don't define, and you don't have to define it too solidly, but I think you just have to be aware that, you know, having a philosophy of practice or an ethos or whatever is a really important thing to guide us. And in that, you know, you might say person-focused care might come up or being a good listener might come up or yeah. being evidence-based might come up. And I suppose it's about exploring some of these different philosophies that are out there that, that, that shape us as clinicians. And, you know, uh, it's a personal philosophy, so not some Greek dead dude philosophy. <laughs> Uh, you, do you know what I mean? Because philosophy, instantly you're thinking about some, you know, Greek guy sitting on a field or, you know, on a, on a column. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can probably see his winky, that type <laughs> of thing. Um, right. So, so not that type of philosophy, more the philosophy of, you, you know, our personal philosophy. Yeah. I, I think we, that doesn't get explored enough and, and people aren't actually aware of you know these things that do shape us and you know even a discussion about what is the biopsychosocial model what is the biomedical model and just explaining a little bit about what goes into these things i think that instantly would set the discussion off. Uh, and then the second thing that i'd quite like to see is a little bit more about the something like the philosophy of, of, of research and understanding research so that we're setting people off you know to to be better at understanding you know evidence-based medicine and what is evidence-based medicine because that should also drive what we do and then our and then our personal philosophy of yeah. you know what's what what is humanization of healthcare how are we interacting and working with people what of these aspects is important to us and i think bringing those two things in together i think would probably shape people a little better from the start rather than anatomy physiology do you see what i mean yeah we start so with the nuts blending and bolts. the art and the science yeah yeah well yeah i mean i don't even know if it's art if i'm being honest i think it's pretty solid science but, oh um, even um like because the art like my sort of interpretation of the art aspect is being able to take yeah your sort of your personal philosophies and approaches and apply it to the individual sitting in front of you and that can just be a whole mishmash of lots of different things that will vary from this person to that person to that person so to me that's what I sort of interpret as the blending so the art of applying all of the science to an individual yeah yeah no I I I suppose I sometimes it's kind of yeah sometimes the art is actually a lot of science (laughs) as well though it makes it sound a bit abstract um we are getting philosophical (laughs) I, I can get, I mean, yeah, I mean, the coffee is kicking in. Um, so so what I would like to see, you know, is just it sh- people being shaped a little bit earlier around some of the models in healthcare, what they mean, some of the philosophy behind evidence-based medicine. And again, part of the philosophy around evidence-based medicine is the individual versus the population level. 
Yep. Do, do you see what I'm saying? So again, you know, it's that's one of the big things that we struggle with, don't we? That we have all this population data. How does that apply to the person in front of me? Because yeah. they're not an average. They're not a mean. Yeah, and very rarely probably, is that person yeah, the average of exactly. the cohort. That yeah. probably ties in really well with actually the BPS model, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, 100%. because that then is about the humanization and the individualization of healthcare. It's not always about the individualization of treatment. That's that's slightly different. You know, you could have two cancer patients, very similar treatment, but you might treat them very differently. You might listen to different concerns. You might have to deal with different things in their lives. Do you see what I mean? There are aspects that you can't standardise but do affect outcomes. Yeah, so that the whole kind of the narrative that sort of plays out with one person versus another. Yeah, and the, the narrative and the interaction. And, and for me, that's the biggest part of the biopsychosocial model is you could have two people, very similar pathologies, similar pain scores, similar contributors, whatever, but their world experiences, their world circumstances, the effect on their lives is very, very different. Yeah. And what that means is that my interaction is going to be different. You know, everything that I do may need to be different, uh, even if I standardise treatment, right? So, so I, I think that's where we kind of fall down a little bit is that we're trying to standardise things um, and then we're trying to view this biopsychosocial model through this standardised biomedical lens where we can get a questionnaire and, you know, identify risk factors and causative things. And, and actually, that's really very small parts of what it's really about. It's really yeah. about working with that person and treating that person. And if we can get healthcare students, whatever type, very, very early to understand some of these models and understand why they exist and what they mean, I think we'll do a much better job of creating better, you know, more well-rounded professionals with a better healthcare philosophy. Yeah, uh, but that I needs to be emphasised, right? That needs to be emphasised. You need people who will say, I don't really care that much about the bones in the feet. For the, for the first six weeks, because they don't actually matter that much um, in some ways, you know, it, yeah. in comparison yeah. to what Caring about the person. Yeah, there you go. That's a there you go. There you go. And that's the point. And that needs to be, a, and almost by diving in there with the anatomy day one, you know, that, that we're not shaping people from the start. It's like something we're adding on a little bit later or never, you know. Yeah. To me, to me, the anatomy of the body is important, yes. But if we look at a lot of musculoskeletal problems, including foot problems, they're reasonably non-specific, aren't they? Oh, plantar heel pain, 100%. Yeah. Like the last few there years, the literature with that and how much of a, yeah, all the person-related elements are yeah, more 100%. impactful than... You know, and you're seeing that a lot. You've, uh, you, I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but it's too early, you know. Mela, I think Mela. Uh, has done you know loads of work looking at kind of the person in plantar heel pain and uh, and stuff like that and uh, you know I think uh, yeah I, I, how do we look at that and say how does that shape healthcare education yeah. and that's maybe a big problem that we don't have it doesn't shape healthcare education at a, at a societal level or an, an institutional level it's kind of left to individual clinicians uh, to yeah to seek it, it out yeah yeah. And these are the same problems that we have in lots of parts of societies that health now is about individuals, isn't it? The onus is on you to exercise and eat healthy. 
but it's not on policymakers to create better environments for health. To, yep. You see what I'm saying? I think we need to shape things at an institutional level, not always at an individual level. Yeah, I agree with that, definitely. Because that's one thing. Like, it, you've got to have some level of awareness to even seek out that information. So if you don't have that, then it's just going to get missed. So, yeah, creating an environment where it can be sort of made more available to the masses. Yeah, so I do agree yeah, with that for sure. Yeah, if you don't implement these things at a structural level, then things won't change. And yeah. that's the problem with the biopsychosocial model in the nutshell, isn't it? That it's not implemented at uh, the societal level. It, you know, it's in, implemented by individuals within healthcare, yep. not at the level where we are starting to make help it shape policy and healthcare interactions and, you know, expenditure and these kind of things. And without that, we're not likely to see meaningful change. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's like, a, I think there was a paper published a while ago on a, how long it takes sort of what's found in literature to trickle down into clinical practice. And there's like a seven to 10 year lag between it. So, and like you were saying, it's been around forever, like longer than I've been alive, the whole biopsychosocial yeah. paradigm. But yeah, even still, it's not really widespread throughout healthcare and study. It doesn't, it doesn't fit, does it, with the model? That's the point. It, it yep. doesn't fit with the, it doesn't fit with how healthcare is put together. And you could almost say it's incompatible with the way that healthcare is designed now and with things like financial incentives. And, you know, there, there is no incentive for it to be implemented. Yeah. So it does fall down to individuals within that. But that is modern society, isn't it? The individual is meant to be the most... Sink or swim. You know. <laughs> yeah, that, totally, totally. Whereas if you look at other countries, especially European countries and... This is a little bit of a passion of mine. You know, the Scandinavians, the, 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 the Central Europeans, they do definitely do society better than the Aussies, the Brits, the Americans, because the onus sometimes is on things at a societal level, not always left to the individual. Yeah, don't, some of the um, Scandinavian countries, they just have the happiest and healthy populations on the planet, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I've completed Scandinavia this year already. So I've taught in Sweden, Norway, and uh, what's the other one? Sweden, Norway, and Finland. Finland, in the past yeah. yeah. And, you know, they're, they're just, you, they, they're clean, they run well, people like, like each other. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they yeah, they, they do do society better than a lot of other people. I mean, then there's other, you know, Norway's full of oil money and, you know, and Sweden does have some certain societal problems and yeah, but on a general level, they do seem to put things together a bit better, you yeah. know, because maybe they do still value elements of society over elements of the individual. Um, yeah. And I think really that's what Engel was looking at, wasn't he? He had these hierarchies within that of the individual, of the clinician, of what happens at society, the biosphere, all these different things. Um, and, and, you know, I think we too often do place the onus on the individual to exercise, even though they're poor, they've got no time, you know, they're demotivated because life is shit. And then we put it on the clinician to do stuff like emphasise behaviour change. And at no time do we put it on society 
to say how do we help people do that yeah to create an environment where it could even potentially be somewhat achievable but that takes policy change at decades perspectives in advance and i certainly think the british government aren't very good at doing that yeah i can't comment on the british government i can't say australian government's much better one thing that i did notice is this year they've got a revised code of ethics coming out in june i think for um, just allied health that comes out from the APRA, Allied Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. And it's quite interesting looking at it. The revised um, code of ethics for all sort of allied health has shifted. And I think a lot of it was based on all of the complaints that were coming through from the regulation agencies. So the 2009 code of ethics was very much biomedical, just don't do the wrong treatment, don't do shit treatment. And that was basically it. But now so much of it is on all of the social aspects, so like being culturally respective and understanding the different socioeconomic backgrounds. So that's one thing that I feel that policy-wise, even though it's a code of ethics, so really it's not systematically changing a lot, but at least sort of the governing bodies of the healthcare practitioners are starting to see that. So Yeah, and I get that, and I get that. I, I suppose that it's that's still guiding the individual in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, okay. That no, that's a fair point. <laughs> in, in sense, I, I totally get that. And I think it's important, and I think the last few years have been important for highlighting individual behaviour, how we treat each other, etc. Um but I, I still think there's quite a way to go to create a bit of a nicer environment where people don't feel that you know people are actually nice to each other rather than being told not to say stupid shit <laughs> yeah in some ways <laughs> no i would agree it's and but so, then i'm an i'm a bit of a pessimist here so i've dragged it right down haven't i is it pessimism it. or is it realism like no, I'm not, I'm going. <laughs> see ya no you're not allowed to leave yet there's one question when you were jumping on i just wanted to um jump on this like when you were talking about um yeah like the individualization and person-centered care and using outcome measures and bits and pieces so we know that there's a lot of outcome measures and functional outcome scores that exist for physical things and then we've got all of our yellow flag assessment tools do you utilize any of them in clinical practice uh do you know what i i I don't use a lot of formal stuff like that um one of the reason being is because i don't find it gives me anything over and above a good conversation yep right so so i do think that if you feel that you have outcome measures are for research and health services they're not for patients right so so we know that that that's that's that kind of something that's you know that, that's quite obvious um, because I don't always know if they actually capture what people want, if that makes sense. Yep. So for, for me, one of my chief things that I would like to know from a patient is why are they here? What are their concerns? What do they want to get back to doing? Right. And if I can answer their concerns, give them the information that they want um, and then help them get back to their valued activities. I don't know whether A, that's often captured in outcome measures. Think about most outcome measures. They're focused on symptoms or, you know, generic things like function or disability. What the hell do they mean? Um, You know, what does disability mean? 
Well, I get that's relative to the individual because it's just an yeah. impairment of ability for whatever. Yeah, exactly. But it's such a generic term. Yep. Function, disability. You know, they're measured in very, very generic ways. Um, and, you know, sometimes I actually think they're so generic as outcome measures, they're not actually very useful at all. Yeah, um, Because for me, I'd like to know what can't you do? Why can't you do it? Right. Or, you know, have you been able to get back to doing it? Um, so an outcome measure I don't mind is things like the patient specific functional scale because mm -hmm. it helps take through that process. You know, you can write down what matters. You can measure that zero to 10, which, again, you could say is a very blunt tool for measuring things. Um, and, you know, I, I think for me, you could. And th here's a, you know, if you look at kind of uh, some biopsychosocial uh, interpretations you could say well actually to, to to measure everything i need to give my patient about 35 different outcome measures in different domains and i need to collate those you know create <laughs> the burden of the consultations just yeah, and and it insane. increases the burden of the consultation and they call it responder burden so rather than talking to you like a nice, normal human being, I've given you 5,000 questionnaires. You have no idea why you're writing them. You have, and, and then I have all this information. Um, and I think actually we can do that in more humanistic and more individualized ways um, that probably give us more, if I'm yep. being said. You know, I, not everything for me needs to relate to a number because, you know, even that number is like VAS. The number of pain. What the hell does that mean? You know, I think that's individual. I do use that to, like, to be honest, I use that um, if I'm sort of teaching people how to sort of self dose and like sort of self monitor. Hundred percent. But the, the, even the terminology, you know, uh, give me a number out of ten for your pain. How many of your patients? You know, do they ever got, like? You know, they're trying to work it out. Is it four? Is it a six? What is a four? What is a six? You know, the most and I common think, answer is everyone, not everyone, but most people, they're like, oh, I've got a really high pain tolerance. And I'm like, well, yeah. That doesn't matter because it's not relative to anyone else by you. Like, how annoying is this for you? How much does it stop you doing we, that? Yeah, if we think of pain as a multidimensional experience, if we're getting all fancy and pain science -y, you know, that involves motivation, it involves emotion, it involves you know, uh, interpretation of impact in the future. You, do you see what I mean? If we're going to accept pain as a multidimensional construct, um, we don't half measure it in very, very blunt, unidimensional ways, don't we? Right? Yeah. <laughs> do, do you see what I mean? And, uh, and so uh, for me, I think a lot, of these, a lot of these things don't quite capture what I want. And what I want to know is, is how does this person feel about their problem? What are their concerns? What are their limitations? What do they want to get back to doing? You know, what do they think is causing the problem, et cetera, et cetera. And, and for me, that's probably best done in a clinical conversation yeah. um, rather than a bunch of outcome measures. And I, I think that's why um, I'm less interested in outcome measures because I don't work in a hospital. I don't have to, you know, all, be audited I'm not running a, an RCT, so I don't need to give people information. Um, so for me, yeah. I often start off with a blank Word document and we just talk and I write down relevant things. And as long as I've got, you know, various things in there that, that uh, I have to have in there, 
you know, when it comes to things like outcome measures, I, I don't need anymore. Yep. No, that's a good point. And, yeah, to make, like, with my clinical practice, um, so when I was treating, so I would treat a fair few um, workers' compensation clients, and yep. then last year I was working in case management for workers' compensation. And mm-hmm. when you're dealing with insurance agents and you need reports, of, you've got to justify breathing basically that's where a lot of the reporting measures come into the equation um i feel because i've with um, my online course i've got a whole module in there that goes into the different um yeah like yellow flags blue flags all the flag system and goes through some of the sort of yellow flag screening tools and one thing i've found is even just um people when they have no exposure to any of the whole biopsychosocial model um, I found that it was good to even just get them reading the different scales, so like the Tampa scale of kinesiophobia, even just learning like what some of the questions that might be relevant to ask someone because there's some of the good questions in there, like how much. Oh, yeah, um, 100%. Yeah, like a good starting point, but, but then so I would agree with you. Here's Sorry. a point. Could you take a question from lots and lots of different systems Tampa scale of kinesophobia, you know, TSK, whatever else. And actually, I think you could probably make a composite one from lots and lots of so rather than have 10 questions on one on, on one questionnaire, could I have one question from 10 questionnaires? You probably could. Yes. And this is something that I've been thinking about for years. Uh, but I think that we, you know, you can still apply those in your own way. Yeah, oh, definitely. Become, yeah, and that I think that's the point. If you become comfortable with what you're trying to ask. So key key point is we know prognostically musculoskeletal recovery is often defined by your beliefs about around recovery. You know, whether this is whiplash, whether it's back pain, whether it's shoulder pain or whatever. So I always ask the question, where do you see yourself in six months? Do you think this problem is going to go? Right. But I don't feel I need to have that down on, on, on a questionnaire. I've yep. just asked it so many times, it just becomes part of my repertoire because I know it's an important measure. Yep. Well, not even an important measure, an important factor because yep. people of, often ask it on kind of a, you know, not in an out of 10 way. They'll answer it in a, you know, a little bit or not very much, which you can pin to a scale. That's that's the Lickart scale, isn't it? You know, yep. that, that you could have five five measures of that and that would just be 20%. Stuffed, um, really stuffed. Super exactly stuff. exactly and, uh, but that's what a, a Likart is isn't it basically yeah. you're pinning questions to a scale just you aren't asking people to use that scale you're using the questions instead um you know like global rating of change is similar you know yep. a little bit too much and again that would be a percentage-based thing when you're interpreting the answers um but for me i think there are key questions that we can a- ask people that probably come from lots of different domains and lots of different questionnaires. I just don't, I, I, I try to do it in a very unformal way these days, just because I feel that the more formal we become, actually, the less the answers you want you get. Yeah, it kind of, um, that whole formalisation, oh, without us being aware of it, it can just rupture that sort of rapport building, which is sort of one of the integral That's parts exactly of the that's exactly the point is it that, that you know that and again this is what i'm talking about where the system is taking dominance 
So people have to interact with insurance. They have to do it in the insurance way, which is justifying this and asking this and doing that. And that actually is probably getting you worse outcomes. Oh, it's like uh, from doing your mentorship a few years ago, um, that really opened my eyes to the whole psychosocial everything. That was a supercharge of learning that. But then I don't think I really understood or saw it in practice as much as I did when I was in workers' compensation, just the burden of having a compensable injury and just seeing how that plays out with someone. And it was just mind-blowing. So that's, I think anyone that wants a real understanding of how societal factors impact on someone's injury, work in workers' compensation for a few months. Or go and work in a low socioeconomic area. Or do you see what I mean? And suddenly... Or even go and work in a high socioeconomic area. You know, that may have other challenges and other benefits. But um, lots of what happens in this world is not directly influenceable by us. Um, And, and, you know, you have to come to terms with that. That's why randomised control trials don't always simply equate to everyone gets this outcome. You know, because there are people who are in lots of different, you know, we have similar physiology, similar pathology, but lots of different environments and beliefs and thoughts and experiences, etc. Um, and so I think this is where it comes back to often we are trying to influence the outcome when the outcome sometimes is hard to influence. But can I help and influence this person? Yeah. And I think just actually navigate that makes, the... Yeah. And that makes the process of having the problem a lot easier. If you look at back pain, for example, back pain has a very, very strong natural course. Um, you know, not very much helps back pain, right? Um, back pain does what it wants to do. And, and isn't there role, the more people that get that, sorry to interrupt you, like wasn't there a paper published relatively recently, like the more non-evidence-based treatment interventions that are introduced in the first few weeks prognostically sort of determined that someone's going to have a poorer outcome to recovery? Yeah, and that, that, paper's, that paper's been slightly misinterpreted because the what they had as evidence-based, non-evidence-based interventions were things like early scanning and, and things like that. So it yep. wasn't like hands-on versus exercise type of thing. It was actually yep. a bit more systemic um, than some of those factors. But I always ask this of healthcare professionals, you know, lots of problems in the body have quite a consistent natural history to them. Mm-hmm. Natural history is the wrong term in some ways because natural history means without intervention. Um, and often things don't, you don't see much that hasn't had any intervention because you don't contact with things that don't have any intervention, right? Yeah, well, yeah exactly. So, but I think that, you know, if we look at the, the plantar fasciitis is a great example, right? Does that have a reasonably consistent course of, um, history throughout lots and lots of people. Yeah, when we were going through, well, you, you know, even yeah, for probably twenty years, they feel that within two years, most people will have some level of resolve with it. Yeah, and sometimes you know, and sometimes they can underestimate it for some people. Sometimes they can overestimate it for some people. But you're not going to come in. I'm not going to wiggle your foot about, and suddenly it's magically going to go. You know, we know that from the natural course of the problem, it's going to hang around a bit, right? Yeah. And so you can positively or negatively influence that, actually, as a healthcare professional. So over-diagnosis and over-treatment 
are things that negatively affect prognosis. Prognosis is, or prognostic factors are things that affect prognosis, right? Yeah. So prognosis being the outcome of a problem, and that can be influenced positively or negatively. Um, and, you know, I think we, we have to ask ourselves sometimes, have we actually slowed down that natural history of the problem? Have we created an element of chronicity where it's, where it's gone on for longer than it would. I mean, I suppose you could say plantar fasciitis is a chronic problem because of the natural history. Yes. You know, in, 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 in essence, it's a chronic problem because its natural history is way beyond three months. Yep. Um, but there is that question of, have we actually negatively impacted here? Like engaging in the theatrics of treatment where we're just doing the stuff. Yeah, because yeah. it's not going, we needle it, we ultrasound it, we shockwave it, we rub it, we poke it, we stretch it. And actually, it, those things might equally as might slow the course of the problem down as speed the course of the problem up. More, and even adding that better. stress element where people like practitioners, it's one thing that some are quite guilty of where they'll kind of overpromise on what a treatment intervention can deliver. And then when it doesn't deliver it, then the person's going, oh, crap, the problem's even worse. It's never going to get better. And that sort of. And that's also the point of setting poor expectations, isn't it? Yep. Is actually, you know, being in a place whereby you do, people don't understand. Look, you take frozen shoulder, take tennis elbow, take lots of other problems with, with quite a long prognosis to them. You know, it's an extended prognosis. Um and often we talk about things being self-limiting when they're actually not self-limiting for everybody. You know, frozen shoulder, you know, people talk about it being self-limiting in a year, apart from that person who's had it for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so one of the real keys, I think, is understanding things like natural history and prognosis and prognostic factors and being able to set realistic expectations because poor expectations of recovery, both too quick and too long actually negatively affect outcomes and one of our key parts so over what we often do is we under deliver good healthcare information and caring and we over deliver treatment yeah i would very much that's a very succinct way to put it. i agree with that well that's yeah so so we take these problems that are often you know that i i, I just think we just think throwing the kitchen sink at things are oh, what's the worst that could happen chronicity is the worst thing <laughs> it's gonna hang right? around for a long time yeah because we know that because we do things like prognostic research whereby we look at these factors and actually prognostic factors are, are driven by things like high levels of pain high levels of disability you know previous injury affects future injury etc but they are also strongly influenced by psychological factors expectation so of recovery and pain self-efficacy and these type of things. Um, so we we under-interact and we over, you know, uh, do or treat often. And, that, and that's part of the problem, I think, in, in, in musculoskeletal health, whether it's the shoulder or the foot or, or wherever. I would agree completely. It's, um, yeah, two hands off and not, yeah, building that self-efficacy and the understanding even just the reassurance that you're not going to yeah, be but, better tomorrow, but maybe in yeah, and that, a reasonable and time frame. And, that, and that's the point. So it's not about educating about the biology of pain, you know, that, that got very on vogue and very fancy. 
it, for me, it's educating people about the pragmatics of their problem. How long is it going to last? What can they do about it? How can they manage it? What are some effective self-management strategies? So rather than generic information just about the problem, we need to help integrate that a little bit more into, into that person's knowledge base and their understanding and their context. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And then that kind of leads me into sort of my last question, which is, are you continuing to run your mentorship? Like, so oh, is yeah, there going to be another intake yeah. of that? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm going to, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's in the can. Although every year it gets a bit of an update and uh, and stuff like that, but it's in the can for uh, for next year. And actually, I am implementing my own advice. In the first module, we sit down and we say, "What is my philosophy?" and, and go from there. That's the, the I've designed it in the way that I would like to see healthcare education, which is you know sitting down and saying, "What are the important things to me as a clinician?" You know, am I dominated by evidence or am I more dominated by helping understand people or, or maybe am I a little bit in the middle and and how can we bring all these things together you know I think that's uh, that's really important is to kind of you know practice what you preach if you like 100 percent and so that's one thing that I would recommend so anyone who's watching this who does has found this talk interesting and would like to explore the biopsychosocial model a lot more in depth um I can't recommend Ben's um, mentorship highly enough. I think it will be fantastic. So for future so if people want to track you down, follow you, where will they find you? Uh, I'm very, very difficult to find, actually. I'm very <laughs> unvocal. Yeah, as you can tell. So no, I'm, you know, I play around doing a bit of tweeting and, and on Instagram and it's just core kinetic, C-O-R-K-I-N-I-E-T-I-C. I can never remember how to spell kinetic. Uh, K-I-N-E-T-I-C. T-I-C, yeah. I'm sure I want to add another I in there somewhere, but there's not. There's, it's, that's just where it is. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, I've really enjoyed today's chat. So thank you again for joining us. And, yeah, hopefully we can catch up again soon. Yeah, it all got a bit deep and philosophical for like eight, seven o'clock in the morning, didn't it? But, but yeah. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. All right. Good stuff.